You know that effect where you notice all the yellow Volkswagens on a crowded highway? Not because there are really more of them, but because your brother just bought one. When you're by the side of the road with your thumb out, waiting for a green light to release the next wave of cars, that effect starts to predominate. You start to think that it can be applied to everything. By the side of the road, I'd be willing to bet that when you're flooded by thirst in the desert, you'll see a sand-filled bottle in the distance, with a label that's the only thing you remember from a raucous night. And when you're mauled by a bear in the forest, you'll look up and see your dog's eyes. Sometimes it's a long time till the light turns green. Just up the road is North Adams, Massachusetts, which used to be an industrial town. There's a museum there called Mass Mocha, the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Light. Contemporary art. I think I said light because that's what I go there for. There's a semi-permanent installation on the lowest level by the artist James Terrell. His stuff's about the manipulation of light. This installation consists of a series of rooms with light projected in a way that makes you feel like you've stepped into another dimension. I'd stop in again if I could. But I'm getting close to Canada, and the border has become this burning goal. I'm getting impatient. The light turns green and a car pulls over. It's driven by Alois Kronschlager, an installation artist and sculptor who first came to America as a hitchhiker. When we talk, his mind is in the middle of stringing up laundry outside his studio. What we just did is we actually, for the first time, we have been in this loft building since 17 years and yeah, it's a garage next to us mm-hmm. from our living room. And so I lowered a ladder so we can finally access the rooftop. We actually, my wife and I, we're doing laundry. <laughs> <laughs> we put a clothesline between the building, not even next door, the one over. And we use the garage that's between our two buildings. It's a platform to uh, have a clothesline. Do you have the little wheel to move the clothesline no, along? No, uh, we, we, we don't. But we found an old hook outside from our building, a really old one. And on the new building after the garage, there's some heavy cables. So there's an attachment. So I was okay. able to fasten the rope between those two hooks. Because obviously we're in lockdown. Yeah. We had to wash our sheets, our towels. And this is also the first time that we actually able to enjoy a little bit of sunshine. Just a second, I'm fastening another clothesline while we are talking. <laughs> because we realize that one line is not enough. So just give me a second. Sure, sure, sure. So my first hitchhiking thing was in 1986. I'm from Austria. And I hitchhiked from Austria to Brussels in Belgium. And then from there, back then you were able to buy one day ticket to the States and the airline was called People Express. And I landed in New York in 1986. And then from there, I have a cousin of mine who has been living in Canada for a very long time. I was visiting her. So I went to Canada and then I was trying to get to Toronto and she was living in St. Catharines. So from St. Catharines to Toronto, you could take a bus, like a Crayon bus. 
it would take like two hours. And I decided, no, let me hitchhike also in the States. And then I hitchhiked from Toronto to Montreal, Quebec, back to Toronto, <laughs> back to St. Catharines where my cousin lived. And then I said to her, my next destination is going back to New York City. Let me hitchhike across the border. And she says, no, 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 please don't hitchhike across the border. Let me drive you across the border. And she brought me across the border in Buffalo. And literally right after the border crossing, I got out of the car and I hitchhiked to uh, New York City. And that was the day before Easter Sunday, exactly in 19. 87. So I had yeah, hitchhiked in Europe in 86 from Austria to Belgium and then in Canada. But I have this crazy story. Jerry Saltz, the art critic, was teaching at the School of Visual Arts where I did my MFA. And in our second year, we had to do a presentation in class, like a 15, 20 minute presentation, to talk about something that didn't have directly to do with our artistic studio process. So when it was my turn, I said to Cherry, I said, I have to leave the classroom for a second. He said, why? He said, well, I have to change into gear and I'll be <laughs> back in two minutes. So outside of the classroom, I put on my hitchhiking gear. I still have the same leather jacket that I had back then when I first hit the road. And then the two aluminum suitcases and the straps that I created, almost like a corset, the strap those uh, uh, suitcases onto my body. And I entered the classroom. Everybody was like, oh my God, what are you up in? I said, well, you know, that's how I arrived in the States. <laughs> and that's how I arrived in New York. And I told the story that the day before Easter Sunday, my cousin, Annie, brought me across the board in Buffalo. I was waiting for a ride. And then like somehow I ended up in Vermont by like late afternoon. And I had a booklet with me, all of the American youth hostels in uh, North America, because that's where you usually stay. But most of them were still closed. It was early April, so I thought if I don't catch a ride anytime soon, I'm going to sleep in the fields. Because I was, I was out in nowhere, somewhere like stuck. And I waited for a car for a really long time. But then this car stopped, and it was this young guy. The car was very filthy, like boots with mud on it and all that. He said, where do you want to go? I said, well, I want to go to New York City. He said, well, I'm driving to New York, but not New York City. You can catch a ride. And then we, we started talking. And I'm going to sort of like speed up the story because it's a very long story. <laughs> so my concern was I didn't want to end up in the South Bronx at midnight. My goal was always, can I do it within daylight hours for my hitchhiking to reach my destination? So we started talking and obviously it was getting dark. And then he said, well, let me call my parents to see if you can spend the night in my parents' house. And so we stopped at a phone booth. He called his parents and he said, yes, happy to have you over. So we arrived in this town called Chappaqua. We arrived around midnight and the parents waited for me to greet a stranger. They cooked me a dinner. And then they asked, tomorrow morning, would you want to come to church with us? And I thought to myself, of course, you know, they're offering <laughs> me a place to stay. Of course, they're going to come to the church with them. So they woke me up. I slept in this uh, attic room with blue painted walls and a lot of crystals. And in the morning, they wake me up. I have a coffee and then we go to church. And it was, for me, 
having newly arrived in the States, almost like being in an American movie, the church was up on a hill surrounded by a cemetery, and it was a Quaker church. Huh. Priest had a long beard, and this lady was playing on the piano. It was a sermon, and then after, it was Easter Sunday. So I tell this story, everybody wants to talk to me because I'm the stranger with this strange suitcase hitchhiking here. <laughs> and when I finished my presentation, my classmate, Phoebe Washburn, comes up to me and she says, you won't believe, but you're talking about the church from my grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> so years later, when I recount the story in front of Jerry Salson, you know, the MFA class at the School of Visual Arts, one of my classmates, grandmother, it was her church that I arrived in decades ago. Wow. So very strange <laughs> Strange coincidence. So I sent you also the image where I was hitchhiking. It looked like a pretty sort of radical look for a hitchhiker. Yes, because, you know, I'm an artist. And for me, I never wanted to look like a hippie hitting the road. For me, I think my first artistic project were, I think about the New York Worlds for 1964, where the astronaut has the jet gear. And so, like, he takes <laughs> off from, from Queen's Park. So for me, the idea was, Hitchhiking, yes, of course, I stayed in, in YMCA's youth hostels, but also you could end up in a fancy hotel and like have a fancy suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> the suitcase was back then the latest edition from the Rowena suitcases. I built it with my brother. Those straps, they were like old seat belts, you know, red leather and like special form. So the idea was that you could even jump in a river, float on that suitcase. It was watertight. Then also the small side suitcase flipped into sort of like a coffee table where I had my coffee or my drinks or I put my <laughs> signs in there, you know, like Toronto or Montreal or Quebec. And a lot of people that stopped me always said, the first question is, oh my God, what do you have in your suitcases? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So what was the culture of hitchhiking like in Austria? Because having hitchhiked through it in the last few years, people are very open to picking hitchhikers up. There's a seemingly a tradition of people picking students up. Was that the case back when you started? For me in Austria, my idea was traveling. I wanted to meet people. And the best way to meet people is I always had some like this rule, travel by yourself, not with a friend or like you know, or in a group because then you know, like always like for me it was also like important to learn English and meet people who are actually there and if you travel in a group like very insulated so obviously being young I was 20 years old when I left Austria it was important to hit the road have a sense of adventure of certain unknown and a crayon bus I think from Toronto to Montreal would take like seven hours I would make it in six hours hitchhiking so I was also you know proud eating public transportation <laughs> even with a timeline so there was a, a certain rush how fast can you get there if you're lucky were you mostly aiming for the highways or were you taking local roads it was mostly highways i had one experience hitchhiking from toronto to st catherine's where there's the queen anne's expressway and i was on a ramp and obviously i saw the sign you're like no hitchhiking there were even a sign so like you know hitchhiking wasn't allowed from that intersection and it was I put my thumb out, and long and behold, a police cruiser pulls up next to me and says, put your trunk in the back. And I did it, and I had to sit in a police cruiser, and he says, you know why I picked you up? He says, I said, no, I mean, I obviously pretended. I had to right. be the citizen. He said, well, you know, hitchhiking isn't allowed from this intersection. 
And after he checked my passport, that I don't have any records, he said, well, let me help you out. Let me bring you to an intersection where you won't have a trouble to catch a ride and where you're also not in legal trouble. So he drove me to another ramp from the same highway, from the Queen and Expressway. I got out, put my thumb out, the car stopped, and I ended up in St. Catherine. So it was actually an amazing experience. So yes, it was mostly highways. I mean, except hitchhiking from Buffalo down to New York City, I ended up in Vermont and then stuff like, you know, in, in, in different borough. But it was mostly highways. I've always had sort of the opposite experience. Like, I, I've had cops that were like, let me put you in a different spot. But in my experience, they've always had the worst judgment in terms of where you'll get picked up. They're like, Okay, <laughs> no, for me, I only got picked up once by the police. And that was outside Toronto and I guess the guy had helped out a few hitchhikers before where I was on a busy ramp and people couldn't stop their cars. So, yeah. yes, it was maybe not the best spot to try to hitch a ride. Were there any sort of places that you stumbled on, perhaps on that Buffalo to Vermont hitchhike, that you weren't expecting that really sort of stunned you? I mean, for me, it was Chappaqua. Now everyone knows Chappaqua because Bill and Hillary have a house there. But I was not familiar with this very beautiful town. And actually, years later, I went back to the town and back to the church because I was curious. I was revisiting my early stop over coming down to New York. But I have not hitchhiked since 1987 when I arrived in New York. What made you stop at that point? You know, life happened. So, mm. you know, for me, it was sort of like a way of being 20 years old and hitting the road and, 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 and seeing what you can do. And later on, there was, I don't want to say no need for it, but more about I spent years in New York before I went to Japan. In Japan, I didn't hitchhike, I took trains. So it was more, I think, sort of like just the initial way of leaving Austria and making this sort of like my way of leaving a certain safety net mm, yeah. <laughs> and let the adventure start. <laughs> But for me, it was really important that I have a special gear that are made of, like, you know, a sculptural body extension. Was that gear the first thing that you sort of had an audience commenting on your art for? You know, back then, I mean, everybody was saying, oh, my God, you know, uh, <laughs> how does this work? Uh, who made this? Or, or did you do it yourself? And I said, no, you know, this was for me. It was also like very good design. You could carry, you know, 100 pounds on your back where you, where you don't pull a muscle. It sits perfectly. It's cushioned. And it was something in a sense to customize a gear or to, or to customize something specifically for your body, for your height, for your the ergonomics of how you can walk, how you can run with this mm -hmm. load on your back. And so I guess, yeah, it, I think it was sort of like my first, um, my first sculpture <laughs> that really had all a means to it. And that also caused a certain attention because I thought, how do I differ from another hitchhiker? I definitely had the most interesting gear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that also helped me. I mean, I had a wonderful experience, never got into trouble, was always super fast. And I think it was also thanks to my gear. Were there people who picked you up who influenced your thinking about the sort of art you wanted to create afterwards? I got uh, picked up by from truck drivers to uh, moms with their kids to uh, singles to... I mean, every walks of life, you know, for a couple of miles or like for really long distances. Also, you know, back then, 
first of all, I didn't consider myself an artist. I said, like, you know, I traveled for me. I become an artist along the way through mm. finding my way. So, like, you know, I mean, when I started, it was more about how can I get from point A to point B, mm-hmm. meet interesting people, have a conversation. And then I became an artist much later in life. But it was definitely a certain sense of curiosity and like how you engage with people while you are catching a ride. You also ended up, I think, much more recently than that, certainly doing very site-specific works. Yes. From what I've read, a lot of the history of site-specific work is done by people who are huge travelers. Like I know both Robert Smithson and Michael Heiser were big hitchhikers back in the day. Do you think your hitchhiking influenced your site-specific work or how you looked at sites? I wouldn't say directly influenced my site-specific work, but while you're traveling, while you're on the road, looking out the window, hoping, staring at the landscape, you obviously become very aware of how the light moves, of distances, of proportions, how the figure-crown relationship works while you stand on that empty road or in the field taking a rest while you're trying to get picked up. So I think you become very aware of your surroundings and how that experience. And also for me, you know, I'm from Austria in the country, so I'm, I'm very much aware of nature and landscape and the surroundings, even though the last 34 years I've lived in, in metropolitan cities. I think the hitchhiking days is in a sense of being outdoors for a long time at times, observing the landscape, being able to read distances and sort of like, how you can relate to a certain scale or how you can map a space that even maybe helped me already during my hitchhiking days. So, like, you know, which spot you pick to, to, to oh, have yeah. most visibility. So, like, how you position yourself in the landscape out in nowhere, how you create sort of like a demarcation line, yeah. how people approach you, how they can observe you before they pull the brakes and invite you over. It's almost like, you know, how you approach a building or how you approach a sculpture. And being a hitchhiker in the landscape is almost in a sense like, you know, how this car, the driver approaches you and how you could make it more a visual interruption. So he sees mm. you in time, you stop, check you out, <laughs> if he feels comfortable enough to pick you up and then, you know, to drive off. So I think it's, it's something, you know, how you do this and, and, and how you become used to dealing with that scale. So within my site-specific work, it's all the time, space, and color. And with time and space, you, you also deal with speed, distance, when things move into focus, how you become aware of it and what you can do. So yes, I always loved space. And so I think that even hitchhiking early on, the love for space and how you make use of the space is something that you're putting up another sheet on the closing line <laughs> yeah. while I'm talking to you, is also formative. Are there any last things that you would want to say about any fundamental ways in which hitchhiking changed you or any lessons you took from it? Looking back now, 34 years later, in a sense, it's sort of like you become more aware of the process and my work deals a lot with the process. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the process was, okay, so you want to hitchhike, so create an interesting gear that could help you, that is also safe, that creates a visual mark where people can see you. Safety, and then how do you engage within the conversation? You become more aware 
I, we have to squeeze the water out of, <laughs> of, of, of uh, another sheet here on the terrace. So you, you become aware of the process. And, and how do you become a good observer? How do you continue with a certain discourse? How do you have a conversation? How do you take certain risks? So for me, looking back on my hitchhiking days, I call it my wild and crazy years. <laughs> and, you know, as an artist in the studio, you always constantly take risks. You edit yourself. And, and hitchhiking is another way that exposes a certain sense of vulnerability within you and how you deal with that. So you can feel absolutely fabulous one day and then the other day you maybe are down because you've been pleading for a ride for way too long. <laughs> so I think it's a great way to get to know yourself. Mm. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, think about something like a vision quest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you're young, you're out there by yourself, you get to know yourself. And I think as an artist in the studio, you, you get to know yourself as well. I haven't quite made it to Canada. It's dark, and I'm somewhere on Route 7 in Vermont, past Rutland, not quite as far as Manchester. It's one of those nights where I'll camp wherever, because I feel like I'm almost where I'm going. When people ask where that is, I usually say I'm trying to get to the border. Seems more reasonable than saying wherever the road ends. Tomorrow I'll start early, try to get to the border around noon. There are thousands of miles to go in Canada, but I have to get there first. <laughs> 